Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Savneet Singh, currently the president and CEO of Par Technology Corp. and a partner at CoVenture. Par is a $1.6 billion market cap public company whose technology services over 10,000 restaurant locations in over 110 countries. And CoVenture is a $2 billion investment firm focusing on novel asset classes, whose founder, Ali Hamed, was a past guest on the show. Sav previously co-founded GBI, an electronic platform for the trading of real assets, and Terra Holdings, a holding company of niche software businesses. 
He's an unusual talent whose achievements have been recognized on the Forbes 30 Under 30 and Crane's 40 Under 40. Our conversation covers Sav's early love of investing, time on Wall Street, transition to operator, and lessons learned along the way. We then turn to PAR, discussing its history, corporate culture, and trends in software. And we close with Savneet's thoughts on crypto, advice for managers and allocators, and his growth as an investor from serving as an operator. Please enjoy my conversation with Savneet Singh. Sav, great to see you. Thanks for having me. I know this is a few years in the making and a lot's changed in your life, but why don't we go back to your very early interest in business and investing? Because I think we're going to go back and forth between investing and operating. I discovered investing in college, actually. I went to college, not exactly sure what I wanted to do. I thought I'd be a tennis player. My father was a doctor, so I always thought I'd be a doctor. But in high school, I had started a business selling baseball cards on eBay. And I loved it. Like I would race home to go get the checks in the mail and, and send out packages. And I thought it was just a really fun thing. And so when I went to college, I had this inclination that I might like business. And then in my sophomore year, my dad sent me the Roger Lowenstein Making of the American Capitalist book, and I got obsessed with Warren Buffett. I went to Omaha and did the whole thing. And so I started writing all of the investors that had gone to Cornell, Seth Klarman and Dwight Anson, all these guys, and probably none of them remember me messaging them. And, and they all responded because this is before I think they had become the superstars that they all are. And everyone said, here's the books I'd recommend, read The Intelligent Investor, read this, and go spend a couple of years in investment banking and uh, to kick off your career. And so that's kind of how I fell into it. It was not by intelligent design. I really lucked out and that my dad sent me that one book and kind of changed the course of my life. So before we go into that, what was that baseball card business like? When eBay came out, my brother had found it and, and he had bought a card on eBay. And I remember we all came home and were like, wait, you just bought something online? It was this whole e-commerce thing was still very new. And so my brother and I had these big baseball card collections and, and basketball card collections. And we said, well, what if we could sell stuff online? And so I remember we went on there and we sold our collections and we got like 500 bucks. And we were like, oh man, that was like not, a, that's actually not a lot of money for all these years of collecting. And so we started going to the local card store in the mall, buying cards there, selling on eBay. We we're making a little bit of money. And uh, then my brother had this idea, which is, you know, the problem with baseball cards and, and basketball cards is that you never know what you're going to get. And people are, I'll use this term now, I'm sure we didn't use this term then, we're like, they're pretty risk averse. So if we went and made our own packs of baseball cards, but gave a floor value, because baseball cards are unique in that there's a book value that might say a card is worth $5, but I'd only pay 25 cents for that card. And so that's not actually the, the real value in the market, but some book value says are five bucks. And so it's kind of like if the Kelly Blue Book said your cards are 100,000 bucks, but you can only sell it for 10 grand. And so we would say, hey, let's go make packs of cards worth $15 that cost us a couple bucks to make. And we'd sell them for five bucks. And our pitch would be, hey, you can buy a pack of cards on eBay with a guaranteed value of $15. And if you're lucky, it has these amazing pieces in it. And so we built this amazing business. And, and I think by the end of high school, my brother had bought a car right when he turned 16. He had a car <laughs> delivered in our driveway. We both paid for college with it. It was an amazing experience. And so in many ways, I wish I continued, but it was our, our first foray into business. And, and it all started because we were home one summer and my dad said, you guys got to make some money and go get a job. And so we said, all right, we can do this instead. So off you go to Wall Street. I spent my first two years of my career in investment banking at Morgan Stanley. And you know, in many ways, I did it because it was sort of the advice I got from many people. But also, I had no exposure. I wasn't like a super finance major from Wharton. And for me, it was the greatest introduction to Wall Street. Most people hate investment banking because it's the 100 hours. I loved every minute of it. I thought it was exciting. It was fun. I remember meeting CEOs when I was 22 years old, flying to Japan to do a deal. It was great. But really, really, really early on, I remember calling my dad and saying, 
I want to be on the other side of the table. I really want to be the person making that decision. And and so early on, I realized, hey, this is going to be a stepping stone for what I wanted to do. And at the time, I said, hey, I want to be Warren Buffett. I, I want to I want to learn how to do this. I want to learn how to be an investor. And so at the time that I was in investment banking, everybody was going to private equity, and I said, I want to learn to pick stocks. I want to be Warren Buffett. And so I had started making a list of investors that I wanted to work for. And I had this you know, incredibly lucky circumstance where Byron Wien was the chief strategist at Morgan Stanley at the time. And so I was a 22-year-old analyst, sat on email and said, hey, can I get 30 minutes of your time? And so I told him the whole story and, and how I'm working so hard and I love researching stocks. And I said, you know, where should I go work? Like, if you were me, like, where would you want to go work? And he gave me a piece of paper and he wrote three funds on it. And so I started writing letters to the founder of each of those funds. And I had realized that, you know, you can go through these headhunters, but it's very hard to get a hold of a multi-billion dollar hedge fund manager. And so I had come up with this hack where I'd write them a hand written note and they would respond. And so I ended up getting a job at a hedge fund there. And my pitch was, listen, I'll work for free. I just want to learn. And it was the first sort of part of my life where I realized I was geared for the long run because when I left to go work at that hedge fund, I took way below market compensation. I made less than I made investment banking, but it was a person I wanted to learn and be exposed to. And so I jumped into that. I did that for a little while. And I think really quickly, I realized that working at a hedge fund is not being Warren Buffett, the short-term nature of the investments, the aggressive like studying of the quarter. I remember sitting there and understanding the business and realizing that this is probably like not my path there. And it was right in the middle of the financial crisis. And I thought I'd done a good job. And I thought I was kicking butt, but I lost my job. And I remember that was a big punch in the gut because it was the first time in my life where I'd experienced like, oh, I'm not the best. I'd gone to a good school. I'd gotten the investment banking job everybody wanted. I got the hedge fund job I wanted. And then I got punched in the gut and particularly because I thought I'd done a great job. And so that was the moment in my life where I became very much like, I've got to do this on my own and I've got to create my own path and I don't want to sort of be at someone else's mercy. And so that was my quick journey through Wall Street. It was, it was a very short training period, but one that I'm very grateful for. So at that point in time, how did you decide what to do next? It was a crazy time in my life. I, I just lost my mother. I'd gotten really sick and I lost my job. And it was all pride, right? It was this idea that, man, I was the hot stuff. I was models of bottles living this amazing New York City life. And then all of a sudden I was, you know, living, sitting in my little apartment. Like, what do I do next? And I remember one of my friends who actually, I guess now is relatively well known, Jesse Pucci, through his podcast, had come to my apartment and he saw that I had a GMAT book sitting on the ground. And he picked up this book and he's like, you're going to take the F and G mats? He's like, are you kidding me? I remember it just hit me. I was like, yeah, what am I doing? And so I got very lucky and ended up starting a business with a couple of folks that he had known. And, you know, it was very much geared on this idea that I had this entrepreneurial bent that I wanted to be self-reliant and self-resilient and I wanted to build something. And so I ended up in 2000, I believe 2009, starting a company with this idea that we wanted to, at the time, democratize hard assets, create the ability to buy hard assets, baseball cards, diamonds, gold, silver. And we ended up focusing on gold and silver. And, and it was a pretty cool experience for some of that time because fintech wasn't really a thing. I don't even think that the term had been coined. And so building a financial technology business in a time where banks and brokerages were still scared to work with you. I remember our early customers would say, hey, we'll work with you, but put X million dollars in a bank account so we know that you're, you're real. And it was an amazing experience for me because we got to build and grow a business early in this sort of wave of fintech. And I got to learn all those skills of how do you build a business? How do you hire? How do you develop cultures? How do you deal with sort of long sales cycles? The beauty of the software business. And so for me, I got into the business more so because I wanted to build something, not so much that I had an obsessive passion about that category. And it wasn't a natural transition, but it was the one that worked really well for me at that time. Even though your experience in banking hedge funds wasn't that long, I'm curious from that experience of those three things you just mentioned, building, hiring, and culture, what did you learn first about building a product as an operator that you couldn't have known on the other side of the desk? 
the hardest part of building a product that you don't get being on the other side of the desk is that nothing is obvious. There's sort of this assumption, which is you just put these things together and it's, of course, Spotify made sense. When you're on the other side of the table, you understand that there's so many interdependencies for a product to be great. Timing, the talent, the look and feel, the UI, UX, and, and looking back, it looks so easy. But the ability to have all of those things work together, it's so freaking hard. My favorite example of this is when we were building our business and we're like, hey, we're going to build a trading platform and we're going to go plug it into all the big brokerage firms so that they can have access to trade hard assets. That's all we got to do. That's pretty simple. It makes sense. We're going to be the New York Stock Exchange for X. And then going to every single meeting and sitting down with Merrill Lynch and Bank of America and Goldman Sachs, all the big banks and everyone saying, that makes sense. Talk to us in four years. And realizing <laughs> that you know being an operator, it is a long-term game. To answer your question, the biggest distinction I learned is that when you're in a services business or in the investment business, it's a relatively short-term game. You know, in a hedge fund, maybe it's a one-year game or maybe it's a quarter game. When you're in a banking deal, it's a transaction. When you're building a product, it's a five, 10-year game because you fail, you fail, you iterate, you iterate, you iterate. Then you find product market fit and then you're not done. Then you're still rebuilding the product and you're constantly rebuilding and rebuilding. And so the biggest change for me is the reorientation of my mind that building a product is an incredibly long-term game. And it's, it's a bit like investing. You're on constantly reallocating capital and time to figure out how best to maximize that product. And so to me, that was the single biggest shift, which is this that oriented my mind to be very, very long-term oriented. And how about hiring people? So one of the great things I did learn on Wall Street was filtering for great talent. I do think that I remember when I got to my investment banking class at Morgan Stanley and looking around and it's a very poignant moment. One of my friends, Jack Chen, is now a wonderful private equity manager. I remember sitting next to him and being like, wow, I just worked with the first person in my life who can think faster than me, smarter than me and harder working than me. It was a, such an amazing experience. It was the first time I felt pushed. And so I learned a lot from that from the Wall Street perspective, which is that rigor around the interview process, the intensity around having great grades, all that, that really helped. And so the hiring process for me, I tried to translate that into the sort of non-traditional finance world, where the finance world is very much where'd you go to school, X, Y, and Z. In the operating world, you're looking a lot less for rounded people and more for specific talents. And so what I used to would say is I want that intense bar that you had when I was trying to get a job at a hedge fund or at a bank. But in the operating world, I really wanted you to be a super focused person on that thing we needed. You know, if you're going to be running the call center, like, is that your obsession? Is that your passion? Is that the thing you're singularly amazing at? If you're going to be in product development, are you going to be the product development person that comes back to me and says, uh, sales isn't selling the thing. That's their problem. Or you the product development person says, I live this product. I need it to win and I'll work with sales to get over the finish line. And so it was a distinction in, in sort of saying, finding that well-rounded investment banking talent, the person that was good at everything to the operator, which is being great at one thing and then putting you in that seat to be successful. Were there particular questions or tips you learned along the way of how to question people so that you can tease out whether they are great? Of course. I don't know if you can tease out if they're great. I think you can tease out if they're the right fit. And so a lot of the questions I ask are about not so much what you do in your resume. I think there's a great sense of, I can read your resume and tell you if you're checked the boxes. What I ask for is more about how do people define you? Ted, what, how do they describe you? If we went to dinner with your last two bosses, they'd say, Ted is X, Y, or Z. And that perception to me is really important because it's got to match up to the story you just told me. And you'll be surprised how many times someone say, oh, I'm the hardest working person, hardest working, hardest working person I, you know. And then I say, okay, cool. How does your boss define you? And he'd say, 
I'm a lot of fun, you know, like, and you say, okay, like that's interesting. And then the second question I usually ask after that is how do your colleagues define you and make sure that they're connected. You know, I never love when they're sort of, you get two different answers and say, Hey, people should know who you are. The other part of the interview that I, I tend to think a lot more about is how do they look at the role? Because I think sometimes you get excited about the person, but forget that again, in an operating business, you're going to a very specific role. And so I tend to ask if Ted, if you're in this role, what are the metrics I should be tracking your performance on? And so that you and I can have an objective relationship. I'm sure I'm going to like you. I'm sure I like getting dinner with you, but how should I think about your performance? What are those metrics? And it's amazing how often you'll have a great interview and I'll ask that question and they'll say, oh, you should be focusing my metrics on revenue. And I'm like, you're in supply chain. Like, I think it should be cost, right? Like it's a bit about understanding that and their lens of how they look at what's the important levers of their job. If that question is off, it's oftentimes very hard to course correct because they're wired to think my job is to do this. I need to rewire them. And, and I, I always hate that. And then the last thing that I try to really, really understand is I always tell managers, you need to understand how the person that's working for you, how they're perceived, but what really motivates them. And so I always say on my management team at PAR today, I know the person that works at PAR because they want the pat on the back. They want the recognition that you really appreciate them. I know the person that just cares about money and wants to hit the goal and get paid. I know the person that needs to feel like they're part of the process. I know the person that X, Y, and Z. And so I try to, by the time say, okay, if this person's on my team, they're gonna need this type of recognition, this type of reward, this type of X, Y, and Z. And will that fit into the, the environment that we have? And so that's a little bit how I go about it. And then the last thing I'd say, which I'm always shocked, always shocked how few people do this is, I really dig into the references. So I think everybody gives you their best references, but you can ask specific enough questions to figure out if they're there because it's just like investing, right? I can give you a great interview, but track record sort of trumps all. And so to me, having really strong references is important. So I can have that great interview, but if those references suck, I generally say, let's interview some more people. And then lastly, as you built up GBI, how about culture? Culture is this really hard word to define because I think it means a lot to a lot of people. And the thing that I like to say is that oftentimes you, Silicon Valley is a culture is about fun. It's about creativity. It's about free coffee. And I always say that early on, you have a great opportunity to also say, hey, we're fun. We've got free coffee, but we're also a culture of rigor or we're also a culture of intensity. I'll give you the PAR example. When I got to PAR, it was a broken company. It was really poorly managed. There was a sort of sense that we work for a family, not a team or a board. And so when I got there, I remember the first question I ever got on the town hall when I said, hey, I'm Savneed, I'm this guy. It was, what do you think of our values and our culture? And I said, to me, values and culture make for really fancy posters on a wall. I'll know your values and your culture when I interact and work with you. And so what we ended up doing at PAR is narrowing on, at the time, just three values. And we said, these values will define our culture. And everyone's like, just three values? Like, what about this and that and that? And I said, the problem was that when you define your culture with like 10 values, everybody fits. If I gave Ted a list of 10 values, he'd be like, I'm pretty good at like eight of those. So like, I'm a fit. I always say the values need to be like hard left, hard right. And so at PAR, this has now changed a little bit. We had three values when we started. We said the first is speed. We look for people who do not wait for the elevators. We want people to sort of run up the stairs when they've got a great idea. And that speed has to work internally as much as externally, right? If you send me an email and billing and I work here and I say, oh, I'll get to that the next day, that gives you the excuse to do that to the customer. The second one we've always had is, is ownership. We look for owners, not renters. You treat rental cars very different than the cars that you own. And that's got to be ingrained with you. And then our third value, which has since changed, was, was winning effing matters. We've got to win. And it was this idea that the scoreboard counts. And is that, hey, we can have this fun environment, but it only works if it wins. And, and I gave you this example only in the sense that those are like acute. Those aren't sort of like everybody fits or not. And so it created this left and right so that we could build a culture and reinforce. And so I would say if you came to par and met the sort of young leaders at the company that have come in over the last couple of years, I don't think you'd find them to be the same as the traditional archetype of, of a Silicon Valley software company. I think you'd be like, 
there's a mix of people that look like they should be working at 3G Capital to a mix of people that want to build a great product, but they all live in this world of like, we've got to move fast, we've got to own and we've got to win. Those values have evolved from there, but I think like setting that cultural set up front and having some intense ones, it's a competitive advantage. I know I'm taking a long time on this question, but I'll give you a great example, which is I do a case study at PAR and I always say, look at Lyft and Uber. These are amazing businesses. Started right around the same time with ostensibly infinite capital and ostensibly the exact same employees, Lyft drivers, Uber drivers. And if you fast forwarded, this is an older case study now, eight, nine years, Uber is in like 90 countries. It's got a food delivery business, it's got a chopper business, it's got a truck business. And Lyft is in two markets, Canada and the United States. Why is that? I'd argue that it was the cultural difference because they had all the same resources, they had the same people. And you had one culture that was so intense, it was driven, it treated every manager as a CEO of a business unit. You go run that, that's your baby. And one that, you know, you go to the offices of the other company, you feel like you're at Google. And I remember when I met, I've had family members that work at Uber and got to meet Travis a couple of times. And early on, he said, our margins are Amazon, they're not Google. And so we've got to treat this like we own this baby. And so I give this idea that imagine the distinction of those businesses. One's in 90 countries, one's in two. One's got all these business lines, one only has one. It's like a perfect petri dish of a, of a study. And so to me, setting that cultural tone early is irreplaceable. It's so hard to do that later on, which is what we've had to do at PAR. If you can do that early and then you've got to compound and hire around it. So I want to circle up to PAR. There's a bit of a gap here in between where we were and where we're going to go. So why don't you walk through quickly what happened with your hard asset business? So we built it up and I left, I think, end of 2016, beginning of 2017. And for me, you know, as I mentioned, I always wanted, had this sort of idea that I wanted to do something that's next. To me, it was my expression of my entrepreneurial desire. And in building that, I developed a love of software. I started to realize that, you know, I used to tell all my friends, this is years ago now, that if Warren Buffett was 30 years old, he'd just be buying software businesses because they have every aspect of a great business that he talks about. They've got massive moats. You can raise price every year. Customers are happy. It's this beautiful flywheel of a business. And so I started thinking a lot about how do you make a business around that? And so like everybody else, I discovered Constellation Software. I discovered Vista. And I said, there isn't a model yet for that of doing that within growth-ish software businesses. You know, Constellation buys slow growth businesses. Vista buys these gigantic turnarounds. But what about like doing that in a growth engine? Because what I learned is we're really good at operating software businesses. I think we're sort of best in class there. We have a good view of like the right place products to buy. How do you put that together? And so I went out on this journey and said, hey, I want to go build the modern version of, of a holding company into software. And that journey went on and we stumbled upon PAR. And I met the prior management team and said, hey, would you sell me your software division? And they had said no to us. And so didn't think much about it. And then a year later, in our journey of buying assets, one of their investors, and I think later one of their board members reached out and said, hey, we're looking for a board member. And so that led to me being on the board and eventually being the CEO. And so it's one of those things where you just got to be in the arena and we kind of stumbled to it. And so it was, again, like I said, not by any intelligent design, but it was this being in the arena allowed us to take advantage of an opportunity. So before you got to par, as you're sort of building this up and forming this holding company, what happened with all of that activity? We had gone on this effort to acquire software businesses and make investments. And so we'd made a few investments. It was working incredibly well. And it was a partnership. And I think we felt that at the time we needed a bigger platform. And it was the observation at the time, which was we had too much ambition for the capital base that we had at the time. And also that we needed the ability to effectuate change. It was very hard not being in the driver's seat, if you will. And so when the PAR thing came up, it was luck. It was sort of said, hey, this kind of gives us a platform. It gives us a currency and a scale to do what we want to do. And so we ended up saying, hey, let's focus on building PAR as that future vehicle. Well, why don't you go through a quick description of what PAR was and is? 
So PAR is a really amazing American entrepreneurial story. The, the company was founded over 50 years ago in the mid or late 1960s as a defense contractor. PAR stands for Pattern Analysis Recognition. PAR was Palantir before Palantir. It had this idea that you could use data to predict the future. And so for the first 10 years of its life, PAR was a bunch of PhDs in a room studying government reports, tracking data, and giving that intel back to the DOD. And then in 1968, one of the mothers of the founders of PAR licensed the McDonald's store. And she went out and said, hey, I want a better cash register and a better way to run this. Because back then, McDonald's would have a cash register and then you'd write orders on the back of the bag. So Ted would come in and say, I want a burger and a milkshake and the cashier would write it on the back of the bag. And she had this thought that we were losing orders because in her words, kids can't do math anymore, but also the flow of the kitchen. And so she kept bugging her kids. And so to convince her, her son at the time to build a better machine, she stood at the end of the, end of the counter and collected every single bag, which was the order ticket. And then over a week's time, then compared that to the money that was collected and to the inventory to say, hey, this is how much money we lose every week. And that convinced her son to go to Radio Shack, buy some circuits, buy a wood box and invent the first point of sale terminal. And as luck would have it, it sort of just spawned like crazy through the McDonald's system organically. Other franchisees wanted it. And then in 1980, McDonald's approved that device as a McDonald's approved device to go sell at McDonald's. And in 1982, McDonald's mandated that every store in the world become a par store. And it's an amazing turn of events. In, in four years, this rinky-dink consulting firm in upstate New York went to being mandated at McDonald's and PAR went public in 82 off that mandate. And for the next five or 10 years, it was a pretty massive success. All the restaurant chains moved from cash registers to point-of-sale terminals. PAR was the big winner. But unfortunately, the next 25 years, the company went completely the wrong way. People joke that when I stepped into PAR, the market cap of PAR was lower than the IPO valuation 40 years ago, or right around there. And so it was a massive loss of shareholder value. And the reason was that PAR was never able to get in the software business. It had missed that transition. And so when software became the key part of running your restaurant, PAR became the hardware and services company. And so unlike Adele, who went from hardware and then kind of got its way back into services, so software, excuse me, PAR got stuck. And so you would buy your software from an Oracle or someone else, and then you buy your hardware from PAR. And so PAR went from this fast growing company to a cyclical hardware and services company. And then at the end of 2014, PAR acquired a small SaaS business called Brink. And the idea was that, hey, this will be our flag in the software business. And it was an amazing acquisition. And when they bought it, it was a tiny business. It was installed in a few hundred stores. It was this idea that you could take our enterprise relationships and sell this to larger customers. And within five years, it worked. The business went from being in 300 stores to nine or 10,000 and really cemented this idea that PAR is now transitioning to a software business. And so that's right around where I got involved. So a couple things. You mentioned earlier that when you got there, it was sort of broken. The culture was broken and you established these three values. What was that actually like coming into the company, figuring out those values, and then presumably having to change a workforce? So let me paint the picture of what we stepped into. So I joined the board of PAR in April of 2018. I was an independent director. And at that time, like I said, we had this terror thing. I wasn't really thinking about running the company. But I think through ignorance and I said, hey, like, I guess I'm on the board. I should really figure out what they do. And so I flew to the different offices to meet the managers, ask a lot of questions, understand. And I came back to the board and I said, hey, here are like the very three simple observations I have that I think require some extreme action. The first was that the Brink product had market fit. There was true product market fit here. And that is so hard to find in software. There are tons of software companies, lots of them make it, but few have true product market fit where you could scale something. I said, this product is winning and we have two hands tied behind our back. You've got to take advantage of it. And you're winning in a market that is just about to become 
it tech enabled that. You know, restaurants were in 1999 when it came to software. I like to say that most restaurant operators at the time were still, the analog is the people who'd say nobody will ever buy shoes online. They were so far behind where they need to go. And so you had the product market fit in a market that was ready to go. But unfortunately, the other two observations I had was that one, the company was structured for failure. It had no money on its balance sheet, so it couldn't really invest in that software product. And as a result, was making really bad decisions around its product. And then the culture was destroyed. It had a complicated structure where it had an interim CEO and a chief of staff, and everyone thought they worked for the chief of staff. There's this, this perception that the family controlled the company. And they didn't. They worked for a family, not the management team. And I remember meeting the managers, and I made this really simple observation of the board. I said, this business has been growing like 50 to 100% a year. That is real growth. And generally, when you go to the office of a company that's growing 50 to 100% a year, people are like bouncing off the walls with excitement. And I was like, everybody hates working here. There's no excitement. How is that possible? And then the third observation I made to the board is that there's a massive amount of distraction. And this is the part that I think most people know, which was they were in the middle of an activist shareholder fight. The prior CFO was on his way to jail for stealing money. The prior CEO had to step down because of bribery and corruption investigations in, in China and Singapore. And so I said, if this thing is going to work, we've got to either sell this company and get let someone else really reinvest and, and, and do that, or we've got to find a new CEO. And so eight months later, I became the CEO. I've been offered the job two or three times before that. I said, no, 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 this is too messy. I don't want to do this. I don't want to move back to upstate New York where I grew up and, and it was not on, on plate. We hired a search firm, but nobody wanted to come in, right? Who'd want to come into a company that has no money, that's got all this distraction and you're not really sure who you work for. And so when I stepped in the company, I actually came there and said, hey, like, let me find a way to package and sell this. I wasn't actually trying to be the long-term CEO. But when I got there, I said, let me try to clean this thing up. And so to your point, I went out and I had hundreds of conversations. I went and met hundreds of employees and said, tell me everything, tell me everything, tell me everything, tell me everything. And through that journey of conversations, I realized that we had to set a new strategy and a new culture for this thing to work. And so to answer your question, the process is relatively simple. I met hundreds of employees. I met the top 10 customers and sort of said, okay, here's the strategy and the plan that we want to work to. Here's how we're going to get there. Here's the execution. We're going to get to that. And these are the type of people that we need to come on board. And candidly, everybody was ready for it. There are a couple of bad apples, but everybody was ready for it. And so I remember uh, just a quick story. The first thing I had to do as a CEO, literally the first day in the office, I had to go and terminate 25% of the workforce because we're running out of money. And one of the board members in, in our CHRO at the time, she had said, we're going to hire you with security detail because this is upstate New York, people carry guns, you know, our workforce up there is like 99% Caucasian, you're like a 35 year old with a turban and beard, like we should just be careful. And I remember going to her and saying like, listen, if I treat everyone at par like they're my employee, they're gonna act like my employee. If I treat them like my partner, they're gonna be my partner. And so I went up, I did the determinations and I did a presentation to the company and said, here's why we did this. We had no choice. This is why we need to save the money. And I said, these people being fired, it's all of their fault. And I point to all the executives of the company and my fault. It's not these people that if I got fired fault, every executive there did not make a plan to execute for them to have jobs today. And it's a hundred percent their fault. And what that did was it set the tone to the executive team, which is like, no one's skating free. Like you guys screwed up. There's no excuse, but also the employees that said, okay, like there's a leadership team that's trying to be a servant leader and, and do it. And I got off that stage and I remember almost everybody came up to me and said, Hey, just tell us what to do. When I'm ready to do it. And that, I remember calling my wife that literally that first day I was in the office said, Hey, I think I might be able to like make something out of this because the team is ready for it. And so I think you have to live it. I think you have to be there. And I think you've got to have that gut feeling that you can do it. And then you can build that culture. But you can't go in with any preconceived notions of this is the culture we need. You've got to go in and sort of understand who the people that are there. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 
36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I want to dance around a little bit with the company. And one of the things I'm most curious about is we have this Andreessen software is eating the world aphorism, and we see it everywhere, maybe even a little bit late in asset management itself. Your this point of sale terminals start in the restaurant industry. Where do you see this trajectory of software and businesses today? And where is it going? So I'll answer that from the restaurant lens because that's the world I live in. Because I think it's in every industry, you sort of have a different point of disruption where you are. In restaurants where we play, it is incredibly early. It's not 99, it's, it's 2000, 2001. And let me think about this very quick perspective. Imagine you were running a restaurant just a few years ago. You didn't have a loyalty app because who would use a loyalty app to order food? You had people come in your store, you had people come through your drive through and that was about it. And in the last three or four years, all of a sudden you're like, wait, I've got to have a loyalty app. I've got to have an online ordering website. I've got to have a mobile ordering website. I've got to have Uber Eats. I got to have DoorDash. I got to have AI software to manage my delivery guys. I got to offer delivery now. And so the restaurant has all of a sudden gone from having to have amazing in-store experiences to also having the amazon.com experience outside the restaurant. And this has happened so fast that the disruption is bound to happen because now your workflow is completely different. The kitchen of a restaurant is pretty much an Amazon warehouse now. They are no longer just serving the people that come in the store, you saying hello, you're getting food. Now you got orders all over the place and you need that. And so as I look at the challenges of a restaurant, every single portion of that will be solved by software from how you take an order. That will be through an app. That will be through your voice, through Siri, Alexa, whatever it may be. That will be through a menu in the drive-through that's not staffed by a human being, but staffed by artificial, like a voice bot. The way that food is made, the supply chain will be completely software-based. Your food will be organic, local, and checked by software to make sure it's real. Your food will probably be cooked by a robot that we manage by a software system. Your workflow of your restaurant, the quality of the food will be measured by a video camera that we manage through artificial intelligence. And so historically, the way restaurants dealt with all of this disruption was hire more bodies. Hey, we've got a long drive through line. Send somebody out in the store to take your order on a thing and come in. Hey, the kitchen's really busy. Throw some more people back there. Hey, the food quality's getting messed up at the end of the burrito line. Send somebody to be a quality checker. All of those will have to change towards software. And so we are just at that inception of restaurants having to balance it because it's an unfair ask. It's unfair to say, hey, Ted, you got to run the restaurant as well as you did in the store and you got to have Amazon.com outside of it. And so the only way to deal with that is software. Where does that put you in the ecosystem? We're right in the center of it. And that's sort of the lucky part of what I fell into, which is the point of sale system, which is the device that when you go into a quick service restaurant or a fast casual restaurant, that device that the cashier is typing on, that's the point of sale terminal. And that system is the system of record. It is when the order is placed, it's the paymenting information, it's the food information, and it sort of pings everywhere. And so for the vast majority of applications that run in a restaurant, your online ordering app, your loyalty app, 
your back office, your kitchen supply chain, it all ends up pulling data from that point of sale system. And so you're that foundational layer, you're that ERP system. And so the idea that we have at PAR is today we are that ERP system. We are literally that. But over time, we want to be the platform that you use. And our dream is to be something not to say, hey, we have a bunch of products. You know, here's a bundle, take them together. It says, hey, Ted, here's this platform. And you can build your restaurant on top of this platform. You can use our loyalty app, but you can go buy your own loyalty app and put it on there and give you this platform as opposed to a collection of applications. And the reason why I like that model is I have this belief that We've gone from the world of software being license maintenance. I'm going to sell you a million dollar license and you're going to pay me 150 grand a year to maintain it. Then we went to SaaS, which is saying, hey, pay me 10 grand a month for this product. And I think the next model we're moving towards is transactional, where it's saying, hey, don't pay me for anything, Ted, unless you use it. And maybe a great example is you probably use software products. Like I I have a bunch of Atlassian apps on my computer because I like to see what our product teams are doing. I probably check those apps once a week. Our product teams use them 100 times a day. We pay the same fee. It makes no sense, right? And so I think we're going to move to a world where it's transactional. And so that's what we're trying to get to at par very quickly. I'm curious how you thought about capital allocation as a CEO. You mentioned that when you got there, there wasn't really much to do because there was no balance sheet. How's that evolved? And how have you thought about organic growth and acquisitions as you build up this platform strategy? So, you know, it's a great question. I think in a software business, product development is your capital allocation function. How you determine, how you deploy your engineering resources is your the idea of being a great capital allocator. And so for me, when I came into PAR, I said, okay, half my capital allocation brain is going to be focused on what are we reinvesting on from an R&D perspective? Because that's usually the big line item, right? In any software company, that's where your, your reinvestment engine is. And then the second half of my mind was inorganic. How do we build on products? And at par, very quickly, what we observed is we've got to make a massive investment into our product, right? Our product had been underinvested in for four years. So there was lots of wood to chop, lots of stuff to clean up, lots of stuff to fix. And so we went aggressively to allocate our capital there. But it became very obvious to me that our new product development was going to be stalled because all of our resources were focused on hardening our existing product. And so for us, capital allocation went to, we need to go acquire assets to build on to become our new product engine and build this platform. And the key element here that I, that I sort of think that not everybody appreciates over time is that in fast growing software markets, you can build anything, right? Now that Brink is hardened and we're growing, we could go say, hey, we're going to go build an online ordering company. We're going to build the AI video bot. We're going to build this and that. The challenge is the time to get to market. So let's make a random example here. Let's, during the pandemic, pickup apps became a big deal, right? I want to pick up my food. And so Park could say, hey, we're going to build a great pickup app. And it'll take us a year to build, a year to sell a few products to customers, get feedback. And then two years, we really can make movement. But by the time we actually are really kicking ass in market, two, three years later, that market is gone. There are incumbents that have taken it. And so I think one of the great mistakes that software investors, software operators make is sometimes in that market, you should buy the product because by the time you build it, you've missed the market and your TAM has gotten a lot smaller. And so that was a lot of the calculus I did, which is, hey, we should be only building software that is truly new and novel where we're going to be first or second to market. But if we're late to a market, the catch-up work, we've got to do that through M&A because then you're buying market share, you're cutting price, you're, you're behind on features, you're trying to force churn. And so that's the way we decided. We said, hey, if it's, if it's a new and novel product, we're going to build. But if it's a category that's already established, we're going to buy. And then we made a very rigorous process of how we look at M&A, how's the product fit, so on and so forth. So I'm curious, you came into PAR not too long ago thinking it was a clean up and sell exercise. Now it's a build. How do you think about your horizon and what you want to be doing with the company down the road? It's more exciting now than it's ever been. The first six months were 
just survival, right? It was renegotiating credit agreements, terminating 25% of the workforce while trying to keep them all motivated. Hey, you're not going to get fired. Now we're building, now we're growing. Removing some of the founding family, which was a big overhang. Getting the activist shareholders on board because they're our partners. They're not, we wanted to turn them from antagonists to supporters. Getting the SEC and DOJ to say, hey, we're good guys. We didn't do anything wrong. All of this was intense work because it was about survival, right? And it's that rush of adrenaline. And then we got through it and it said, okay, now we got to build. And that was the hardest part because it said, we went out, we were really smart about our capital allocation. I think we raised money through converts. I hated our equity price when I got there. And so we're always raising equity at, at higher prices through converts. And so that next year and a half was just about rebuilding the product. It was about rebuilding the product and bolting on a couple of pieces from M&A. And so today where we stand, it's interesting, right? We're, we're through that sort of like survival phase. We're through the phase of like, okay, now the product is kind of caught up. Now it's about what can we build? And so it's completely changed my perspective of where my day-to-day life was just focus on the product, focus on the product to say, what do we want to build and how do we, now we can actually get going. And so it's become incredibly exciting from that respect. But the hardest part is growth is indefinite. I can't say, okay, now we're done. And so you're constantly reevaluating your strategy, you're constantly recruiting. And so we are a company that has no shortage of ambition. And I think that's attracted a lot of smart and motivated people, which makes us a lot easier. I would say when I started part of that first year, it was me in a room trying to figure out what to do. Today, I've got people pounding my door telling me I'm an idiot for that call decision. And I love that because it's, it's great not to be the smartest person in the room anymore. And so that's been the big change, which is today we can actually dream a little bit. And then we have the pieces to actually do it, which is I don't have to be in the room for that thing to actually get manifested to something real. So I have to ask, because I know a bit about how your mind works, if you take a step back from PAR, what activities are you still engaged in as an investor? Still been a partner of CoVenture for a long time now. I'm obviously not involved day to day by any means and pretty distant, but getting exposure to that part of the world is so helpful in how I run PAR because I learned two really simple things that I think I used to take for granted. The first is all the interesting technology trends that are happening, right? Seeing what's happening in payments, seeing what's happening with with some of the changes around even crypto, how could that impact par? And it helps me sort of make decisions of par. The other part about it is the talent pool, right? When you're in a venture business or sort of that Silicon Valley type of world, your job is to understand the entrepreneurs, the heads of product, the heads of development. And so seeing how those minds operate, how they've changed their desires is so useful at par. You just understand that the situation you're recruiting. And so it's been so valuable there. And then, you know, as you know, it also scratches that itch, which is I stumble onto great ideas and it's cool to, again, I'm, you know, five degrees removed and it still sort of works because, you know, Ali is an amazing human being. So what are some of those things that you're super interested in? So the foundation of CoVenture in many ways and the way that I used to invest was this idea that if you miss the big platform, you don't invest in Airbnb, you don't invest in Shopify, was to sort of draft off of their success and finding ways to build or or invest in businesses around them. And so I think I was probably literally the first person that had the idea of rolling up Amazon sellers, which has obviously become this enormous business. I, I literally think I was the first person to talk about that publicly. And so, you know, that's a space that we really deployed tons of capital in. This idea that as we move to a world that's more digital, right? This idea of the metaverse, the financial services products around that are going to need to be completely reinvented. And so I look at things like staking. How do you finance that? How do you finance gamers? How do you think about that, right? So that world, we're like, we haven't, oriented our minds to understand no matter what the mode of business, whether it's human human e-commerce or it's something in the metaverse, financial services are still needed. Like there's still products that we'll need to build, not because you can't live without them, but because they accelerate and we are capitalistic by beings. And so we just try to accelerate faster. And so understanding what are all the products that are going to be needed to make that all work is, is really, really interesting to me. And then, you know, the other area that I, I'm personally very curious about is that 
in a world where the fintech market has evolved to providing financial services for everybody. You've probably seen this, right? The last decade has been X million Americans don't have access to a bank account. X million Americans don't have access to X, Y, and Z. As you bring those people into the fold, as they have access to financial services, what's next? How do you actually think about those needs going forward? And, and so I'm, I'm very, very curious about that. We're right at that edge of, of having the next industrial revolution, which we're kind of living in the middle today. But I think from a fintech perspective, we're just starting to see these products actually have scale, have revenues, and then it will be the next step. So those are the things that we spend a lot of time looking at. So when you talk about fintech and <laughs> call it democratization of access, it feels somewhat synonymous with blockchain technologies in the crypto world. I'm curious how your thinking has evolved in both cryptocurrencies and blockchain. You know, I've had this long, windy journey with, with crypto. We were very, very early in it. 10, 11 bucks kind of with Bitcoin at that time. I remember sort of studying it and getting deep and spending a lot of time with Barry Silbert at Digital Currency Group, who was one of our investors in GBI. I remember just falling in love with it. I remember being like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I was that acolyte. I remember Bitcoin was not even a couple hundred bucks and I was going to the banks that we worked with and say, you got to look at this. We were like these pioneers in that. And I think, unfortunately, that was actually a bad thing because fast forward four or five years later, four or five years later, when you'd been the guy talking about it, talking about it, talking about it, while the price had run up, the utility had almost been proven to not be there, right? It actually been like, hey, no one's using this thing for anything. And so I was like, you know, most investors were just like, oh, you know, if like there's not any use for this, then this is just a shell game, right? It's a little bit of like, I, I think there's some like scarcity value. This is like digital gold, but like I was always interested, always invested, but never like I lost that sort of like being at the cutting edge. And so I sort of like lost interest and became not a bear, but just sort of like, a, you know, it's good to have an allocation, but it's, it's like one of those guys. And then I sort of went through this period of as every part of financial services becomes unbound and rebound and unbound and rebound. That process of the unbound and rebound will create a splintering of some small thing that could be used. And so today, I think it's pretty much established. The Bitcoin blockchain will not be really used for anything that actually has social utility, but it's an asset that you hoard. It makes doesn't make sense to transact. I think the DeFi part of the world where everyone's really excited is interesting. But again, we, we sort of have this challenge today, in my opinion, where all the DeFi protocols about all the financial services that have been created for DeFi protocols are primarily to support the trading of other cryptocurrencies that also have no social utility. And so I think there still has to be some point where this stuff actually has some real world applicability. Now, maybe it's not and you know, nothing ever actually has worked, but I'm waiting for that moment. And I'm really bullish that moment's going to come, but today it's not there. But at the moment that we can find that product that actually makes it work, I think it's quite interesting. And that product might not be a financial services tool, right? It might be the movement of digital health records. It might be the movement of personal information. And then, so if you look at like the third part is like the NFT side of the world, which to me, NFTs are great. There's an applicability. And I think that applicability is not actually an art, but I think it's in gaming. And I think we've had the equivalent of NFTs in gaming for a long time. But is that use case $10 trillion or is that use case for X, Y, and Z games? And so that's a little bit how I look at it. And I, I think... If you're an allocator, you have to be allocated to the space. I don't think you can. But the way that I would allocate would be you've got your sort of core currencies, but then I think you've got to bet on these projects. And I think it's turned into a venture capital game and not a currency game. I'm curious from your experience at PAR and GBI before that, how your lens as an operator influences how you think as an investor. It's been huge. I think that the single biggest thing I appreciate now is someone who still looks at investments, but lives 99% of my life as an operator, is that... When you're an investor and you sort of read about an idea, you assume that one plus one equals two and it should just work. And the reason why you do that is because it makes completely near sense, but also because you're exposed to the greatest operators in the world. If you're investing in public stocks, there are lots of bad managers, but that bad manager is still 100 times better than your local guy that runs your local deli. And so you're, you take for granted just how hard these changes are. So I'll give you an example. When I came at PAR, PAR suffered tremendously from poor architecture and a lot of technical debt. 
just miles, like hard to build a new product for years and years and years. I remember talking to investors and they were like, just throw a bunch of developers at it and it'll get fixed. And being like, gosh, if you could just understand that this is like a two or three year journey to get this thing changed and fixed. And remember, developers don't want to go work on technical debt and fix like broken stuff. They want to do cool stuff, right? And so the recruiting challenge about getting people to fix it, right? And then to keep them motivated on it, then to pay them a lot while you're not building your product and growing revenues at the pace you want to. That is such a hard term, right? And so I think the biggest appreciation I have is that execution is a million times harder than investing. I would tell you that running a company is, and I think most people have done both would tell, like running a company is so much harder than being an investor. The other thing I appreciate so much more on the operating side than on the investing side is humans. I don't think you appreciate human beings when you're an investor nearly as much as when you're an operator because you don't engage with them nearly as closely as you do when you're operating. When you're operating and you're pulling all-nighters and you're working on products and you're working on an M&A deal, I mean, you really get to know who these people are and what motivates them. And they don't have that luxury that they're going to get that million-dollar bonus at the end of the year. They're doing it because they believe in it. And, and it's very hard to find that on the investing side. I know it does exist, but you understand the motivations and the inspirations of human beings where I think on Wall Street, this is probably a bad categorization of it, but it's like you're motivated by hitting that bonus, that target and you get paid. Here, it's very different. You actually understand human nature, right? As I mentioned on our management team, there are people that I know money is not number one or number two. It's about feeling important. And so I have a dramatic appreciation for that human side. The last thing is culture. I think now when I look at investing, I can, in an hour with the CEO and maybe one other person on the team, if I can dissect that culture, I feel so much more confident in investing in that business. It's like this. You can meet a great CEO and then you meet people below. And if those developers aren't sort of the best of the best, you're not going to attract the best of this. You're not going to be the best of the best. But I guarantee that if you had met Stripe 10 years ago, you'd be like, wow, everybody here is insane. And so there's an understanding that cultural element is something I never thought about before. Never, ever thought about before. And when I do IR meetings, every investor asks this question, which is, what didn't I ask you? What should I have asked that I didn't ask? And I remember, so I always thought it was a good question. And my answer is, listen, everybody can understand our TAM. Everybody can understand our market. But I think the coolest thing we've done at PAR is that we're building a team that would have no business working for a rinky-dink company in upstate New York. We've got people that left 3G. We've got people that left Google from Uber, from Blacks. I mean, incredible firms have come to PAR at way below market salaries. And so we may suck. Our products may suck. But the talent level is so high that they will pull that thing through. And so that's the third thing that I just think I, I never quite appreciated being on the other side of the table. So if we turn that around and let's say there's some day in the future where you decide to shift back from 99% operator to 99% as an investor, what do you think you do differently than you used to do? I would be way more concentrated. So I do think I would not spread the bets like I've done in my personal portfolio for years. I think you can make bets on the operators that really are great and the teams that are great and close your eyes a little bit. I think that's the number one change because you can compound so much faster on these great winners. And, and you know every study has shown that, but no one has a gumption to do that because it's hard to figure that out when you, if you haven't had that operating experience. Now, if I make an angel check and I get through compliance, you know it's so concentrated because I'm willing to sort of understand the dynamics of that business. So that, that's number one. Number two is I will be concentrated in my area of focus. The biggest advice I give when I have one-on-ones with our team members is prioritization and focus. It's saying, Ted, you're so smart, you can be good at everything, but you're only be great at one, maybe two things. And so as an investor, I would really, really try to get deep in understanding and finding areas that we can just compound our knowledge, compound our knowledge, compound our knowledge, where we're the go-to biotech, we're the go-to X, Y, and Z. The last thing I would say is, I would make sure I brought on investors that were completely aligned to my time horizon. And, you know, you learn this a lot in running a public company that's quarter to quarter and people have access to you on social media, on email, on text, on phone, which is if the investor base doesn't understand your vision, it just never works. And so looking back at when, when I was been in the investing world, you want to create that alignment day one. So those are the things I would probably do differently. 
So one more question. I want to turn to a couple of closing questions, which is what surprised you about the money managers you've interacted with as a CEO? That's a great question. I'll actually say a positive note. I know everyone likes to trash money managers when they're on the operating side and they get this forum, but I actually had the, had the opposite experience. I have been surprised how many allocators actually are long-term oriented. I, I have been surprised how many actually spend the time to coach me and give me perspectives and not treat me like I'm just one of their random stock investments. So I, I actually have been pleasantly surprised at the care and time that managers have spent on us as a portfolio company. And we're not a private equity company. We're not a VC company, right? They can sell their shares tomorrow. So I, I've actually been pleasantly surprised. So that's, it was a total surprise. I thought everyone would be an a-hole and we're just in their meeting and we're another cog in their wheel. And I didn't feel that there are those, I just know that, right? But there was way more that I, I was surprised by that. The other thing that I'm super surprised about is that we at PAR have not been anything close to something you could have written up. We're a company that when I think I stepped in as CEO, we had $12 million of recurring revenue. Today, we've got 75 or $80 million of recurring revenue, right? We did that in two and a half years. That's not normal because we, we've done three convertible notes offerings. We've done three or four acquisitions, right? We did this all in a very short period of time while transitioning out management and turning the wheels of the car. And it's still striking to me that investors don't always get that when you're doing that much change, you're not going to be able to predict the next two years. And so sometimes when I'm talking to people, I'm like, gosh, like I can give you this two-year roadmap, this very detailed what's going to happen next quarter, but like everything I would have told you would have been wrong if I told you any time in the past. And so that type of thing is still very hard for me sometimes. I really struggle in those meetings. I'm like, listen, yeah, this is the product roadmap that's going to happen, but look at our past. We were $200 million company, now we're a $2 billion company. We were $12 million, now we're whatever this. Now we sold the business, we bought three, we went through almost a bankruptcy. Like we went through all of this stuff in such a short period of time. And we did it because we respect you as our shareholders. We bought you through it. We told you what we're going to do, but you're still living this world of like, if that's the one thing I still don't always get. And the last one I'll tell you, which is so curious to me, is that I'm shocked how many investors still don't talk to customers. I'm still blown away by that. It is just still like you learn more talking to a customer than you're going to talk to the CEO. That's still kind of just is a calm. I'm surprised you don't do that. So if you were advising an allocator looking at a manager about a question or two, they should ask a manager to get more insight into their research process. What would those questions be? I would actually first ask them to define the culture of your firm. Like, tell me what defines you. And the culture, again, a squishy word, but like, what defines your firm? If someone hasn't really thought about that, it's not a no, but it probably means that they just ran to go run into business. But versus that person that said, hey, I'm going to build a firm and we're going to be great at one, two, maybe three things. And I think that sheds a lot of light on that human being and that person and how they decided to build that firm. There's not an employee at par who can tell you the, the four values of par today. They're just not. And that's not doesn't mean we're going to be good or not, but it means that we thought through what we want to have, the people we want, the investors we want to have. And so I really do that. The second question I would say is, Tell me the investors you don't want. Like, who's the investor you don't want? And I would ask that before they know anything about you. Because I do that all the time. I said, hey, who's the investor or board member like, that's just not a good fit for you and your culture? The person that's squishy about it says, oh, like, everyone's a good fit. I was like, okay. I love the person who's like, listen, I'm never going to work with an investor who needs, like, monthly reporting because it creates that. So those are the two things I would ask. All right, Sam, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Food. Anyone who knows me is I live to eat. I love cooking. I love going to restaurants. I love exploring. I mean, I will take a flight on a weekend just to try a restaurant. If you look at my social media feed, it's probably 50% food. I just have a passion for food. What's your most important daily habit? I want to say exercise, which to me has been the last 10 year thing. And I'm an obsessive uh, Peloton guy and I love winning and competing. But uh, I would say my, my most important daily habit is actually I work in, unfortunately a lot of hours, but I am home every day to shower my kids before they go to bed. It has become the daily thing. They look forward to it. I look forward to it because it's that 15 minutes of just, there's not a one work thought. 
that comes into my mind. And my kids are getting a little bit older where like I can get a little bit of what's bothering them or what's on their mind or like what what did mama say that, you know, like I, I get a little bit there. And that is a habit that I, I don't have to do that, but it's one that no matter how tired I am or exhausted, I'll, I'll come to the office, do that, and then I'll go back. I got to do that. What's your biggest pet peeve? I really struggle with people who take their success for granted. The most important life lesson I've ever, ever learned is that life is circumstantial. I could give you the story about myself. I grew up this. I went through life-threatening disease. I lost my mother early. You know, we went from rich to just a lot of like misery in my life. But I was born in America. My dad sent me a Warren Buffett book. Like I didn't have a dad that was, you know, <laughs> was sending me like Maxim magazine. I stumbled into a lot of what happened in this par situation. As I mentioned, I said no to being the CEO three times. Like how big an idiot was I, right? And so if you don't appreciate that all that success is not a derivative of you, but the sum of the circumstance that you're in, I really struggle with people like that because you're just not there. And, and probably because then you don't realize how important it is to create circumstance for other human beings. So that, that's probably my biggest pet peeve. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? So my greatest investment pet peeve is historically, I would say everybody misunderstands TAM. When you look at venture capital, everyone's like, hey, I've got this platform that's going to create real estate investing online. Real estate's a $10 trillion industry. And you raise all this money and then you realize like, wait, Real estate is a $10 trillion investment industry, but the people that want to invest online is like maybe this big. And the people that are credit investors are maybe this big. And the people that want to move money, and, and you, they don't do that work on how big is that end market. It's a huge pet peeve of mine. But my biggest operating pet peeve, which is probably a more interesting question from where I sit today, is I hate when anyone says, just do this. Just go change the UI on your product. And that's always strikes me as like that person has never sat in my shoes and I'll never be able to convince them that, yeah, do you know what it's like to change the UI on an enterprise software product? Do you know the disruption and risk that you take? And so when anyone uses words just, whether it's investing or operating, I'm like, you just have no clue how hard that is. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? My dad's been the biggest influence in my life, second to none, primarily because my dad is not a normal dad, particularly not a normal Indian immigrant father. You know, my dad tried to convince me when I was 14 to drop out of high school and become a professional tennis player. You know, where most immigrant Asian parents in particular are like, go to school, get straight grades, go try to go to Harvard. My dad very early on gave me that belief that you live once. He, well, he never really said it this way, but he sort of gave me that thing is, hey, like you live once, you got to try, try to make the most of it. I suffered and got some, hopefully a little bit of stability for you to be stable, like makes no sense. Do that. When I became a CEO of PAR and then, we you know, I remember when we turned par and i was like dad like par is like a billion dollar market cap and we do that like so fast he's like yeah but you're not running google and so my dad is a from a traditional work mentor perspective i don't know if i ever had that i never had someone sort of watched me through my career gave me that mentorship advice but i'll say something that i actually think is unique when i became a ceo of par i'd never run a public company i'd never run a company the par size and i i don't know if i ever deserved the job but i was always committed to working my butt off and getting it right and, and i had a right view and i would say that the early shareholders of par who are all potentially polarizing figures did a really wonderful job of like welcoming me and also helping me. You know, there's this guy, Asham at, at Barron, who would spend the time saying, here's why IR is important. Here's what you need to know. And I'm telling his friend, even our activist, Adam Wyden, who's a funny and polarizing guy, you know, he'd slam at me screaming for two hours, but I learned and I adjusted and, and it helped at times. Scott Miller from Greenhaven, they're not mentors and guiding me in my career, but I actually appreciated them spending the time to sort of teach me what I didn't know at that time. And and lastly, I would be remiss if I didn't call out Ro Nagpal, who was my partner in Terra and really did teach me everything about software investing. And I, I do think he's the best software investor in the world. And so those are people that I look to. What's the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it? To me, the, the biggest mistakes in life has always been, I've always been focused on what's the next step instead of living in the moment. And I truly, truly regret not enjoying those moments along the way and living and realizing that those personal relationships, those bonds, those, those trips that I skipped, those dinners that I skipped, 
or left early were actually the things that I was going to remember and, and focus on because I was so focused on success. All I wanted to do was be successful. And I regret, seemed like I was making a sacrifice for my greater good. And in reality, I was actually hurting myself because those are the things that I really wish I spent the time to enjoy. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? So I'll have to break it between mom and dad because my parents were remarkably different human beings. My dad, that Teddy Roosevelt quote of being the man in the arena is like the definition of my father. If you're not the guy that asks the girl out, you're never going to get the date. If you're not the person that tries to become the professional tennis player and drop out of school, you're not going to happen. And so it took me a long time. I was a shy kid. I wasn't the person sort of screaming for that attention. But when the big tough decisions at par came, when I had to make removing the founding company, these things are really hard. I always look to that as like, you know, if I didn't have my dad in my ear, because that wasn't necessarily my natural personality, I don't think I would do that. And so throwing my hat in the ring or my turban in the ring was something that I think my dad just really put in me early on and, and that obsession of uh, resilience. My mom was a complete opposite. I could have been a social worker and my mom would have been completely fine, provided that I took care of my family and my community. And so anyone who knows me knows that I spend a disordered amount of time in community causes everywhere I go because probably because of her instilled this idea that it's not me that's successful. You were a product of this environment that made you successful and you have to give back to that. And so my mom really, she never said it, but just it became the thing that mattered. You know, when I got a my first Morgan Stanley check, she made me go donate it. Or my mom made me go donate it. When I would win an award or a prize, my mom's first thing was like, don't tell anybody. We don't want anyone to know this, right? It's still why I don't, you know, so she really instilled some great lessons like that. All right, last one, and you may have touched on it earlier, but we'll bring a subtlety. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Oh, I think I hit this, unfortunately, but it is that it take those moments along the way. There's that great Giannis video of after he won and sort of understanding ego. But I've had this interesting life where I've had many moments where I had to take a pause. One of the things that I think everyone should do in their life is find those abilities to take pause. And, you know, when you're an athlete, you win a championship, it's a moment to reflect and pause. When you retire, it's a moment to reflect and pause. But when you're running the corporate ladder for 40, 50 years, it's a very few moments where you're stopped. And unfortunately for me, I had a moment when I was fired. I had a moment when I lost my mother. I had a moment when I thought I was going to die. I had a moment when I thought my child was going to die. I've had these moments that have shocked me to my core and have forced me to sort of say, what do I want out of the rest of my life? What, who are the people I want to be with? What do I want with my time? And inevitably, every single time I have one of those moments, I end up coming back to, I wish I spent more time with my father and my mother and my friends and my family. And so I would say that finding ways to create true pause to think about that, you'll always come back to like, I wish I did that. One small tip that I would say that is important is I really think it's important that everybody realizes that life is about wisdom, right? It's about knowing more when you leave this world than what you did before and appreciating more about the world. And the fastest way to do that is to learn from people who've already lived. And so you asked me what my pet peeves are, and I've got lots of pet peeves about investing and operating and all that stuff. But one of my great pet peeves of human beings, if you don't spend the time to understand your family history, your parents, their grandparents, where'd you come from? Because it's not about, will that make me a better investor? But it, I think it helps you understand who you are and, and appreciates like, oh, how lucky you really are. So to me, it's being able to live in those moments, taking those pauses in life to understand, but then learning from all the people that have already lived a lot of the stuff that you're about to live through, go through, no matter if they're successful or not. Great. Seth, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 